Okay, here we go. <coughs> no, we don't. <coughs> okay. All right. One more time. One more time. Welcome to the Geek in Review, the podcast designed to cover the legal information profession with a slant toward technology and management. I'm Marlene Gaybauer. And I'm Greg Lambert. So this week, Marlene, we are doing the show nearly live, I think. Yeah, <laughs> so, almost. <laughs> yeah. So in a few minutes, we'll be talking about a very hot topic in the overall education and library world and how it can be applied to the law library environment. And that hot topic is makerspaces. So Ashley Matthews from George Mason and Sharon Bradley from the University of Georgia are going to tell us all about makerspaces. And I know that I'm very excited to have them here because creativity and curiosity is definitely a theme that we use a lot on this podcast. Yes, this is a real learning opportunity. Uh, I'm not sure how many listeners out there know what makerspaces are. And even if you do, this is a great time to unplug from the grid and think about how they can be applied in the legal space. So before we go any further, Marlene, I wanted to encourage everyone who has not listened to last week's episode on bias against women in the workplace, make sure you take the time to listen. So Marlene and I have gotten a lot, and I mean a lot of good feedback, well, feedback. <laughs> All feedback's good. All feedback is good. So with what uh, Andy and Al had to say, if you did listen, share it with a friend or colleague. We'd love to get some more feedback on this important topic. We got a lot of commentary and questions and even requests for a part two to hit on things that we didn't get to. So I'll, I'll give you a little taste. Uh, people were asking, you know, why are men afraid of sexual harassment accusations? Is it because they don't trust themselves or they don't trust women? And, you know, that. That's a pretty good question, actually. Yeah. Uh, and another listener asked to delve more deeply into racial distinctions in this space because not all women have the same experience just because they're women. So as Greg said, please keep that feedback coming. Amen. Now it's time for this week's Information Inspirations. Greg, I'm sticking to one inspiration this week since mine is kind of long. So I read an article in HBR about the dangers of categorical thinking, and this was really a neat article. The theme was how minds are categorizing machines, and this is to protect us. So, for example, we know the difference between a snake and a stick. Mm -hmm. Hey, Greg. Yes? What's brown and sticky? I don't know. What's brown and sticky? A stick. <laughs> it's my favorite joke in the whole world. But seriously, our minds sort through all of the messy chatter, simplify it, and structure it so you can function in the world. Mm -hmm. But the caution is, and, and Greg, this goes back to your inspiration about how personality tests create bias. Yeah. If we compress members of a category as a shortcut, not for any malicious purposes, but to save time and effort, we run the risk of amplifying differences between different categories that might not truly exist, then discriminating or favoring certain categories over others and fossilizing, how do you like that? That's a, that's a word. That's a word. <laughs> the categorical structure as if it were static. Okay. So here's an example that I liked. Imagine you're responsible for hiring at your company. You post a job and 20 people apply. 
you do a first screening ranking candidates in terms of their technical skills and invite the five highest ranked candidates back for an interview. Mm -hmm. Even though the technical skills vary considerably among the five, you're not much influenced by that now in deciding who to hire. Once you've screened candidates on the basis of technical skill, those who made it to the next stage all seem similar to you on that dimension because they all pass the barrier, right? Right. So affected in this way by categorical thinking, you'll decide primarily on the basis of the soft skills the candidates demonstrate in the interviews, how personable they are, how effective they communicate, and so on. Those skills are important, of course, but the top requirement for the job was the highest possible technical skills. And the screening effect hampers your ability to pinpoint them. You base the final decision not on the most important factor, but on the other factors. Mm. So the, the way I, I took a look at this article and the way it looks like is we do these broad categorizations and put people into these boxes, these categorical boxes, and make decisions on that. And sometimes we forget, one, what is our highest priority, and two, what are the specifics and the nuances that make these candidates, in your example, the best candidate and not just the best that fit into those two categorizations. Did I did I understand that? I think did you I did. It? I think right. you did. Well done. All right, Marlene, since you stuck to one uh, information inspiration, I will do the same and probably for the same reason. <laughs> uh, all right, Marlene, what do the law firms of Evershed Sutherland's U.S., Goodwin, Oric, and Stoll Reeves have in common? A stick. A stick. <laughs> they are all participating in a project called Move the Needle Fund. So Evershed's announced it's joining the Move the Needle this week and stated that through their work with the Move the Needle Fund, Evershed Sutherland will work to meet the goal of increasing the percentage of female partners to 33% and the percentage of diverse partners, including racial and ethnic minorities, LGBTQ+, lawyers with disability, and veterans to 15% by the year 2025. So do those numbers sound a little familiar? They do. <laughs> like the Mansfield rule that maybe, we talked about maybe, previously? Maybe that's <laughs> what they sound like. Uh, actually, I just found out this week there's a Mansfield 3.0. I'll have oh. to dig some more into that. Yeah. So the Move the Needle Fund is promoted as an experimental laboratory, which incubates new approaches on diversity within law firms over a five-year period which was launched by Diversity Lab and 26 general councils to create more inclusivity within the legal market. So I want to go back to a previous information inspiration from the book by Randall Kaiser on American law firms in transition. So Kaiser cites to a Bloomberg Law Big Law Business Diversity Inclusion Annual Report from 2016, where 30% of attorneys who responded to the question of what do firms do to recognize and reward those working on diversity and inclusion strategies within their firm, 30% of them said they do nothing. Nothing. Oh, boy. <laughs> I, I do want to put out some stats here from, from Kaiser's research on what the value is, the, the actual value of having diverse teams are. So diverse teams are seen by clients as being more responsive, and the overall satisfaction rate is significantly higher for clients. 
Mixed-gender teams significantly outperform single-gender teams, especially in the performance of strength in relationships with those clients. Clients are much more likely to recommend diverse teams to others looking to hire law firms. And having a litigation defense team where there are both a female and a male decision maker, it reduces settlement errors by 31% versus teams with two male decision makers. That's, and so, that's yeah, that's a lot. That's significant. That, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. So while a lot of firms see diversity as a moral and an ethical obligation, the statistics actually bear out that diversity is also profitable. So I, I want to add something because um, there was a, a really interesting podcast on, on Make Me Smart, and it was talking about how uh, the economy isn't, isn't working for women. The whole thing was really interesting, and I would encourage everybody to listen to it. But the one point I want to I want to highlight here is that the interviewee was saying that it is actually more effective in some of these diversity programs not to highlight, you know, sort of it's a moral obligation or it's the mm-hmm. right thing to do or um, sort of the differences between people, but to really just highlight the benefits. So yeah. something like this, where it's like, hey, you know, we can we can reduce, you know, settlement errors by 31%. That's the type of thing she was saying that, you know, you need to start highlighting because then people say, okay, yeah, that, that you know, that makes sense. And, and they're, they're more likely to, you know, participate in, in, in that type of... Um, it, well, it, you have to make it a culture. You have to make it part... More, they're more willing to, to participate in that type of, of culture. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, it's it, it's seen as logical business sense, right? Not not just a oh, out of the kindness of my heart. You should do this, yeah, because like people will want to do it because it will benefit them. Well, and I will tell you that you know I I love saying well, it's the American way. When it comes to kindness of your heart versus profit, profit's almost always going to win. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. well. You know, it's going to be interesting to track these four firms to see how they meet their five-year goals on diversity and inclusion. And they are also looking for a fifth firm to join them. So if your firm is interested out there, uh, you can go to the Move the Needle Fund and find out more information on that. All right, Marlene. And and with that, I'm going to jump off the diversity at Law Firm Soapbox for a few for a little while and say that's a wrap on this week's information inspirations Marlene makerspaces are something that I've heard a lot about lately from my wife who happens to be a middle school uh, librarian she is very excited about the creativity and thoughtfulness that these spaces allow young minds to grow And so when I saw George Mason Law School librarian Ashley Matthews' article on this topic, I I knew I had to get her on the show to tell us more about how she's uh, doing this. And she insisted when I talked to her that we also get her colleague from UGA, uh, Sharon Bradley, on the discussion as well. Yeah, it was a really good article. And I am very, very curious to learn more about this because it sounds like something that can be quite useful in our space. We are absolutely delighted to be joined by two very forward-thinking law librarians. We have Ashley Matthews from George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School 
and Sharon Bradley from the University of Georgia School of Law. So welcome to you both. Hello. Hi, thanks for having us. Can you tell us just a little bit about yourselves and, and how you got into the space? Uh, Ashley, let's, let's start with you. Okay, so I graduated from the University of Miami School of Law in 2012. While I was in law school, I mostly worked with legal aid and public interest law work, um, a lot of immigration, housing, advocacy work, prisoners' rights. Um, and after law school, I moved into working on student debt policy with Equal Justice Works. And I started working more with law students, which I loved. Um, and I loved it so much that I decided to switch gears and become a law librarian. So this is my very first law librarian job, but I still very vividly remember my entire law school experience, what was lacking, what I wish there was more of. Um, and that's what sort of led me to keep trying to tinker with legal education and our format and what kind of lawyers we want to produce. So I'm very, very interested in all of that. And Sharon, are, are you new to the uh, law library uh, world right. as well? <laughs> Just been here a couple days now. Um, <laughs> no, I am not going to tell you when I finished law school, but I actually came to law librarianship after practicing law. I'm, I'm still admitted to practice in Florida to, to keep that up but knew that that's not how I wanted to spend the rest of my life. So I uh, fortunately lived in Tallahassee. Florida State has a library school and literally just met someone by accident in a class I was taking at FSU who was working on her PhD mm. in um, information studies. Being a librarian never even crossed my mind. And yet here oh, you it are. Was, it was, yeah, and it was that <laughs> chance encounter with that person who to this day is now my BFF and lives in Vancouver. Very accidental coming into librarianship, but obviously I think it suits my personality more than um, practicing law, which I loved. But it, it you know, it's it can take its toll on you. And mm. um, but I think it was a good move. You, you see a lot of unhappy lawyers. You don't see as many unhappy librarians. They might not be happy with their employer at that moment in time or their salary, but they're generally happy they made that career choice. And I'm not sure the same is true of lawyers. Yeah, I think I think you're right about that. Uh, I want to direct this question to Ashley. Um, you recently wrote about the very hot topic of makerspaces in libraries, specifically law school libraries. Before we jump into the article, can you give us a little background information on what makerspaces are and how this idea has evolved? Sure thing. So makerspaces are sort of a holdover from the public library system. Um, makerspaces, they're just uh, a location within a library where patrons can go and collaborate, learn and explore using different tools. Sometimes these tools can be low tech. It could be a whiteboard, a laptop, markers, Play-Doh, clay, anything you can think of. Um, you know, sometimes makerspaces are targeted towards different age groups, so that might decide what type of tools are in there. And other times, it can be very, very high-tech tools inside of a makerspace. You could have 3D scanners, 3D printers, um, you know, different types of digitization tools. Um, anything your mind can think of to put in a makerspace, it can go in there. So it's really just a creative room within a library for patrons to think outside of the box and actually create a product or a service or something that they can take home with them and say, look what I've done. You know, um, it kind of turns a library from sort of a passive learning, learning environment into a very, very active learning environment. 
So that's sort of my quick definition of maker spaces. Well, Ash, I, I have just a bit of a confession to make here. Your article, you use the term, in fact, it's in your title, to tech like a lawyer. And uh, I will tell you, I, I totally use this in a recent presentation I did for the students at the University of Oklahoma. And I'm going to use it again next week when I talk with some students at, uh, at Duke Law School. So uh, thanks for that inspiration, for one. Oh, yeah. But one of the things that we tell our law students is that the law schools are there to help you think like a lawyer and that you're supposed to use your analytical skills, your reasoning to be able to understand the legal issues at hand. Those same skills that you use to analyze the legal issues are the same skills that you can apply to technology issues by looking at it understanding the technology and how it applies to answer the legal issue at hand. So uh, again, thanks. And, and hopefully we can, we can build on that as, as we talk a little bit more. Our maker space is meant to be creative spaces just for the sake of, of being creative, or can that creative process be directed toward the creativity within, the, say, the law school curriculum environment? I think a little bit of both. Um, there might be room to have have, you know, different sort of free, freewheeling creativity sessions, almost like brainstorming sessions where students are the drivers and they can sort of propel themselves forward any way they want. And then there could be more structured um, workshops that are geared towards the curriculum, towards ensuring that 1Ls have sort of basic skills that they might need. Um, and even just to touch back on what you said, you know, with teching like a lawyer, another thing we have to be mindful of is that a lot of law students these days are digital natives, um, meaning that they've been using technology their entire lives, but we might want them to use it in a little bit of a different way as lawyers. You know, if we give you a laptop, ideally, if you're, unless you're in marketing or communications, you shouldn't run to Facebook or Instagram first. There are different tools that lawyers use um, that will be more helpful. So I think it would probably be a combination of both, you know, just to make sure that it, they're reining it in. Just like me, a lot of students have a ton of ideas and a ton of different ways that they could see legal services being implemented. But it's going to take a supervisory attorney or a professor to really root them in reality and practice what could actually work. And Sharon, do you have something to add to that? I do. Um, and I have to admit in kind of thinking about this over the last few years that I've really actually tried to focus on the things that I thought were not necessarily the more creative side, and that because that's important, but trying to bring out a lot of reasons to have a makerspace, and obviously in an in academic institution, we need to, have, need to have pedagogical reasons to do that. So I know that I've, the presentations that I've done, really trying to focus on sort of those kind of things, because I felt like that's how you maybe can sell this to your dean and, and, and that sort of thing. Still have the politics to play, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You really do. I mean, you don't want to, while it is creative, if this is something we hope to see happen in the future, we don't need to make that, at least in my opinion, you know, our lead, right? It's, it's not necessarily the lead thing that we talk about right. in having reasons to have maker spaces as well. That said, you know, law school is definitely a process where, you know, most of the joy is sucked right out of it. Um, no. 
<laughs> I, I hate to break that news to you. Oh, you're, you're not sharing anything with me that I don't already know. <laughs> no secrets. No secrets. So if we can have something like a makerspace or, you know, a hub to maybe bring back a little creativity, a little free thinking, a little joy. Um, one of the things that I've mentioned in a presentation is um, Cory Doctorow wrote a book a few years ago. Oh, I think it's just called Makerspace. I can't remember the title now. But he referred to unleashing the inner five-year-old. And I honestly think that we need more of that in legal education because the students, particularly with doctrinal classes, they can get very lockstep. A to B to C to D. And I think if you can have someplace where there's a different creative approach, then perhaps they can change their thinking that way as well. And not, you know, they can go from A to Z to B and just maybe expand their analytical skills. And I'm, I know I'm putting a lot on, on the concept (laughs) of makerspace, but there are learning theories that do back me up. We, We could use a little bit of that in the law firm environment too. Yeah, well, I mean, if you get away from things that you're doing and sort of focus on other things, I mean, it's it's known that that kind of releases your mind to come up with with more creative ways to approach things. So we we understand. So Sharon, from what I've read about makerspaces, and I admit that is not a lot, uh, there's a communal interest among the participants, which makes a lot of sense. But also, there seems to be some sort of physical activity, and I think Ashley touched on this earlier. So tinkering, playing, manipulating something, and and there's a real product, you know, there's a real result at the end, not just sort of an idea for one. So how does that apply in in a library or a legal environment, either a learning or commercial uh, environment? One, I want to stress that no makerspace is going to look like any other makerspace. I think they're all very much, I think Ashley touched on that as well, they're very much about the place where they are. So you will have ones in public libraries that may have sewing machines and soldering irons and things like that. So I think from our standpoint, can we find those tools that may work in a law setting? The 3D printer, I have joked that I am not ever retiring until I get a 3D printer. I'm not going anywhere till I get one. Because I think you can you you have a tool like that that you can use to um, create evidence, pieces of evidence that the students can use in their mock trials or to replicate actual pieces of evidence. Um, but then using those things to learn how to introduce evidence in a courtroom setting. Most of our courts still haven't progressed as far as we thought they were going to 20 years ago. Greg may remember when, you know, the, the tech courtroom of the future was all the hot thing. And that was about 20 years ago, right? Oh, yeah. It really hasn't happened. But I think if we use a makerspace within a law school and a library, could we get accident reconstruction software and get a fancy computer to do that? Can we bring in other things um, like the 3D printers or, or scanners? Or I mean, students are still using foam core boards, for gosh sakes. So <laughs> it, it's the kind of thing that I think we can have a space that we can tie it into our trial practice classes, our advocacy classes, and our clinics. Are we teaching them, you know, some of that law firm Mm -hmm. management stuff they can be doing in the clinics as well? So I I think there's no shortage of ways that this could be tied into what we do. I can can also give you an example. Marlene and I, uh, early or late last year, were at one of the Lexus facilities, and one of their creative spaces 
had a 3D printer in there. It, yeah. You can use that as a leverage. <laughs> Lexus can do it, right? Then you can. Uh, yeah. uh, Ashley, did you have anything that you wanted to add? I think that a, a huge obstacle is how to visualize the law. And on top of that, I think a lot of 1Ls coming in, we take for granted that they know everything that practicing attorneys know. I don't know if that sentiment is you know, as prevalent as it was when I was in law school, but I remember my first week thinking, I'm brand new to this. I don't have any family members who are in the legal field. All of this is a completely new world to me. But there was this expectation that I already knew everything about the inner workings of the law, the inner workings of the government, you know, the branches of government. And there was so much that I had to sort of backtrack and relearn. And I think a makerspace could also present um, an opportunity to have a low pressure environment where people can go and learn things. I mean, you know, we, you know, Sharon talked a little bit about how, you know, you want to unleash the inner five-year-old and that's absolutely true. I can't tell you as a reference librarian how many legislative history questions I get where it is very apparent that people don't know how a bill becomes a law. It doesn't matter if they're a 3L or if they're a practicing attorney, we all sort of need those refreshers. So a makerspace could also present an opportunity for people to go and visualize the law, backtrack, talk to each other like we're all three years old and have fun with the law. Let's take a trip through the halls of Congress. Let's take, the tri- let's take a trip and see, you know, how a bill becomes a law. And you could take a big whiteboard and draw the whole process out. So there's, there's a lot of different things you could do with a makerspace in terms of visualizing the law that we might be overlooking because we just assume everybody's brilliant as soon as they enter, you know, the halls of their law school. <laughs> What would be the difference between makerspaces and things we hear like hackerspaces? Is it is it just the name, or is it a, is it a different type of uh, a discussion overall? My understanding of the difference is that the makerspace really does focus more on an educational component, and the hackerspace, particularly the the, the coding piece of it, that doesn't mean that you might not have a makerspace where you do have workshops on coding. That's something that's kind of been talked about last few years about lawyers learning to code. Um, But that's my understanding of the difference when I was preparing for my presentations and things is just kind of the the focus. I think also um, a hackerspace could imply that you already have a finished product and then you're going to take that product and turn it into something else. Um, You're going to take a system and you're going to flip it inside out um, poke around in it. And and just like Sharon said, I think that's completely possible to do in a makerspace. But I think that's the big difference is that, I, you know, a lot of times you might come into a makerspace with the intent to create something new or think about something in a different way. Whereas a hacker, a hackerspace or a hackathon or anything like that, you're already taking a pre-existing system and you're just poking little holes in it and seeing how you can change it. Um, you know, you could do all of these things in a makerspace, but I think just like Sharon said, that might be primarily the difference. So for both of you, uh, how have you found people responding to participating in a makerspace? You know, what's what's the takeaway for both of you? Well, we don't have one here at the law school. The UGA does have a makerspace oh, no. yes, at the science campus, which is what inspired me to get interested in makerspaces was I went to a program at the makerspace on our, in our science library. So, um, yeah, so far it's pretty much, you know, heartbreak and 
disappointment. It's it's a country song in the making. (laughs) (laughs) I don't get to make nothing in my makerspace. Well, it's Um, a good thing you're in Georgia then. (laughs) (laughs) The reaction is people think it's very cool, but I'm not sure they kind of then see where to go from there. And then, of course, well, physically, where are we going to put it? Like most law schools, we are short on space. And then the funding. So when Ashley called, I was thinking, oh, there's somebody young out there who's going to gonna carry this on. Yeah, for me, you know, I was shocked that there currently is not a law library makerspace in existence. I mean, this was the most shocking thing to me in my research. I thought for sure that I was behind and that this was something that had already been happening. And so I called Sharon and I said, this can't be true. There has to be a mate. And she says, nope. Because, and I think she's already hit the nail on the head, there are so many hurdles in the way that I think a lot of administrators are fearful of, the funding aspect, um, you know, what exactly are we going to do, the programming aspect of it, do we need more staff, is it something that's just going to be another headache for us? So I think, you know, we're all sort of fighting an uphill battle, which I think is always the case with any innovation in the legal field, it seems. Um, So I also have really strong feelings about it though. And I think we are at a, um, a turning point. And I think in future years, maybe even you know sooner than we think, there are gonna be makerspaces popping up, but I just don't think they're going to be called makerspaces. This could be for a lot of the same reason that Sharon mentioned earlier about you know, politi- you know, political things and things of that nature. I saw an article where a law school was you know, talking about how they're going to be starting a tech lab. And it sounded so much like a makerspace, you know, what's in a name? So as long as people are creating these programs and services for students, you know, I don't mind if it's not called a makerspace, as long as we do have that space. That's the most important thing. In that case, what I want to do is I'm going to jump ahead here and we're going to do what I'm going to call the, the fast round. And that is we're, we're going to give some schools some ideas on what they could be doing with some makerspace activities. What I want to do is go around the virtual table here and give everyone, say, five to ten seconds just to come up with some creative activities that you think would work in a law school makerspace environment. And Ashley, since you wrote the article on this, literally, let's start with you. What's what's a one or two good ideas that you think could really work in a makerspace for a law school? Okay, I feel like I'm cheating a little bit since I did just write the article. But my favorite idea from that article was GIS mapping. Geographic information systems are the wave of the future. And I think if we can learn how to harness that technology, firms and legal aid organizations can do a lot with it. Um, so I think. GIS mapping is just my favorite. I would love to see a group of students in a makerspace tooling around with that technology, seeing how they can reach rural clients, seeing, you know, where, I mean, just the the possibilities are endless. Um, So that would be my favorite thing to do in that space. This is going to get me laughed at. I can't believe I'm admitting this, but I'd like to see more role play in makerspaces, Um, maybe even with dolls, if you don't want to role play with another person how to speak with clients from different cultures, um, clients who may not, who may speak a different language, kind of to teach, you know, cross-cultural competency um, in makerspaces. That's very touchy-feely, but that's 
just the kind of person I am. <laughs> so I would love to see something like that. Um, but I don't know that that's just out of the box, out of who knows uh, if that would ever work. Uh, I, I like it. I don't, uh, I don't see anyone laughing. At that. I think that's a great idea. All right, Sharon, you're on the clock now. Oh, okay. Um, I'd like to see more things of perhaps practice-oriented things, um, learning how to, you know, perhaps their own websites, learning more about social media and, and those kind of aspects as well. I think makerspaces are particularly useful for evidentiary kinds of things, of, of uh, learning how to digitize and deal with photographs, audiovisual stuff, but how can they be changed? You know, if you have something that might have been altered, learning how to recognize that, learning how to create um, items of evidence so you don't have to degrade the original and the copy could be passed around, but then authenticating it as a true replica, you know, that's an evidentiary thing that students have to learn as well. So I think those are really important as well. And I'd love to see, as I said, practice development, I think, is one of those things you can sell in, in making a makerspace and all the things that can be used in that scheme and even creating a whole suite of tools and products that the students can use to test out for their own practices as well. So a few ideas. Sounds great. All right, Marlene, now it's our turn. I'll, okay. I'll let you start. All right. Well, first, I want to add um, on to Ashley. So she was talking about role playing. So what about like avatars and personas, you know, as, as part of that idea, you know, when she was talking about, you know, people from different cultures and how to interact. I mean, that that just came to head to my head. So I like games and I like teaching through games. So, you know, a couple of things, um, you know, maybe you could do like, a, you know, study guides using tri like a trivial pursuit sort of model. Or, um, I don't know if this is even good, but the, like a Jenga balancing for the, the, the legal structure. So statutes and cases and, and precedent. And, you know, you basically have to put the right ones on each one in addition without it falling down. Some sort of issue spotting game like those, um, those apps where you have like puzzle games and trying to find, you know, the different issues that way. Then, uh, you know, maybe... I don't know. I may have to cut you off there because otherwise you're going to take all the all ideas. Right, and all, all right. All right. You, you, you go ahead. You go ahead. You go ahead. Could I uh, add one thing to what Marlene said? You mentioned the games. Um, and I didn't know if she meant sort of playing the games within the makerspace or using it to actually have the students create the games. I think you could do both. Right. Because creating the games would be the lesson itself. But yep. they could create something that is actually marketable, right? Yeah. And the one that I thought of, and it kind of got the idea because um, if you're on one of the law library listservs, um, a friend of mine, Mary Matuzak, who's in New York, loves posting errors that she finds on Westlaw or Lexis or other online tools. And I was thinking it'd be great to have just like a, a list of flashcards of go to this case and see if you can find the, you know, the error in this, you know, within this paragraph on this page, you know, just kind of give them something to look at some real world examples of things because there's actually a Reddit site for law students. And one of the number one gripes is citation is creating citations. That's yeah. nothing new. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the blue book never dies. Yeah. And, and so giving, I think sometimes giving people examples of things that are wrong and understanding why it's wrong is better Absolutely. than 
yeah, better than trying to have them create something, following a set of rules and not understanding how those rules apply and what happens when when things go awry uh, on those. So I think we've got some some great ideas here. Wait, I had one. I had one more, and this this was. Of course, you do. <laughs> Overachiever. <laughs> so this was this was for the librarians. Though. This is for the law librarians, not for not for the students. But basically, having some sort of three D software that helps you design different displays for the library. Oh. See, see, everybody liked that, Greg. <laughs> right. Greg. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so I think that we've had a lot of good ideas here, and I think that there, you know, there's a lot of just just in the quick little round robin that we did, a number of things that have practical application to how law students can can become better thinkers when it comes to the art of being a lawyer. So it's a, as they say, it's it's why they 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 call it practicing law because you're always learning as as you go. So, well, I mean, is 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 there anything that either one of you would like to to close out with in terms of you know advice for anybody who wants to to get started doing something like this? Well, I'll go first because I think Sharon should have the last word. I just think that going into it with an open mind, but also understanding that it might be an uphill battle to get it accepted. Um, you know, I think having that mindset and being ready for it is the best thing to do. This is what I'm doing because I'm never going to stop proposing this idea <laughs> to, you know, wherever I work. And so I think having that type of tenacity is, is going to be very helpful because, you know, if I just, if they say no the first time and I give up, then where's the idea going to go? But if I continue fleshing it out, if I continue, like Sharon said, coming up with pedagogical reasons to have this space in the law library, there's no way they can turn it down forever. So um, I'm just going to keep being annoying. <laughs> keep it up. <laughs> oh, tenacious, tenacious. Right, no, and I, actually, I think I have a unique phrase for that concept. I'm going to call it prescient advocate. Like advocating that. for something before it becomes the thing. Nice. So, yes. So, so you're not. So you're annoying. an influencer, you're, is what you are. But you're <laughs> advocate. Um, I'd also like to throw in that perhaps finding a champion amongst the faculty, as we know, a lot of these things, if we can get faculty support for it, then it can happen. So perhaps finding a champion within our relative faculties to to help us shepherd this thing through as well. That could be important. Ashley and Sharon, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. This has been great. Yes, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Well, Greg, I thought that was really interesting uh, in our discussion with with Sharon and Ashley. Um, and and I, I like I like at the end where you know Sharon is is essentially talking about being an influencer, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, basically being the person who's pushing something before it becomes something. Right. So I, I think that's a very modern concept and, and people should definitely, definitely do that. Yeah. I also, I also like the discussion about let's be five again, because I, I do think the stress and, and just kind of the drudgery that can sometimes be part of the law school experience. It's just good to take a break from that. Yeah. And, you know, maybe just come up with sort of different approaches that, you know, are, are a little more lighthearted, a little more fun. Yeah. And sometimes you got to, you definitely got to take a different approach. 
you're 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 just on all the time when you're in law school. Yeah. And you need you need a space to go to that can still help you understand what you're being taught, but in a different way, in a way that allows you to not just be sitting in a chair soaking things in, but rather standing up and, and moving around and touching things and moving things around and, and doing some activity. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity in makerspaces and, and not just in the law school environment, but also in the law, the, the law firm environment as well. I can think, well, just, just think of the war rooms that we have, that we set sure. things up. You know, we do things like, um, you know, a, a lot of pretrial techniques. And some of those pretrial techniques might be something, especially for newer associates, that we do these role-playing uh, things. Yep. <laughs> you know, yep. let's, let's bring out the dolls. Yeah, well, up, I mean, I, I thought about that, like, you know, with the avatars and, and the, the, you know, the personas and, you know, virtual reality where you could basically do this type of practice and, you know, how to take a deposition, how to argue in court, mm-hmm. all of all of those things. Well, I think if anyone can make this happen, I, th- I think Ashley and Sharon are, are going to be able to push yes, through. Yes, they, they are very passionate about it. So good luck to them. Listeners, please take the time to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Read and review us as well. If you have comments about today's show or suggestions for a future show, you can reach us on Twitter at GayBauerM or at Glambert, or you can call the Geek and Review hotline at 713-487-7270, or email us at geekandreviewpodcast, that's a mouthful, at gmail.com. And as always, the music you hear is from Jerry David DeSicca. Thank you, Jerry. Thanks, Jerry. All right. Thanks, Marlene. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Don't have to go.